0: So, the uh, parable of, we've probably heard it, you've heard it referred to as the parable of the sower, right? I refer to it as the parable of the soils because as we get into the details here a little bit later, you're going to find that most of the most of the input and activity is about the conditions of the human heart in, in four separate soils. So, that's the way that we'll talk about it. So, this is one of those few parables that actually occurs in each one of the what we call the Synoptic Gospels, all that really means is that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all present Jesus and his ministry in a certain light. John provides a lot of additional information. So, But in all three of those, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it actually refers to this very special story called the parable of the soils. Um, I happen to believe, and we're going to find a little bit of circumstantial evidence a little later, that, that this parable was probably, almost certainly given to the disciples multiple times. They didn't just have one run in this They had plenty of runs in them. Um, there is a book written uh, called, uh, I think, uh, People of the Book, written by Howard Hendricks. So uh, both Steve and I, when we went to seminary, he went way, 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 right, right. He and John Walberg went together. <laughs> and you were the upperclassmen, so, um, so anyway. One of the things that that prop did, and I just think it's a, it's a marvelous exercise, but what he did is he took all of the parables, all of the sermons, all the actions, all the healing, everything that's recorded for us in the Gospels, and, and he was able to surmise that anywhere from 52 to 58 days are represented. That's kind of, you know, that's, that's a mind boggler. Everything that we have in the Gospels, you're talking about. A couple of months worth of work. Now obviously didn't, Jesus didn't do all this stuff in a couple of months. We're looking at, at three years was filled with activity. So, so the balance to prop here. Uh, the the words that John gives us at the end of the book of John. What is he saying? He says in John chapter twenty-one, he says, um, if someone wrote down all that Jesus To comprehend that, so Jesus did lots. There were, there was lots that He did that's not in our Bible. It's great stuff, but it wasn't essential. Everything here is essential. It absolutely It's all mandatory. So I say that because this is almost certainly one of those parables that Jesus is going to provide to His disciples. Before we actually get into the, to the, uh, the parable itself, I think probably the, the best thing for us to do is we want to go ahead and level, level set on what we mean when I say the term parable. So let's just make sure that as we, as we move forward, we're all joining hands and we're all using the same operating definition. What do we mean by parable? The other thing I think we want to do before we get into the text is we want to quickly revisit the immediate context of Mark chapter 4, Right, So the end of Mark 3 is going to tell us a lot about what's happening in Jesus' ministry because one of the things that Paul read was that Jesus is now speaking a lot in parables. So the end of Mark 3 is going to tell us and it's going to give us some clues as to why he's doing that. So what we'll do is we'll look at that immediate context and then we'll actually get into the, uh, the text itself. Does that sound okay? Corey, does that sound okay? All right, Corey says it. We're good. We're all good. So let's go ahead and, and take a stab at defining this term parable. And again, this is just from my perspective. So ask a raise of hands here. For those of us who grew up in Sunday school and you were told what a parable is, it was something along the lines of it's a an earthly story with a heavenly meaning, right? Does that ring a bell? Okay. And, and I think, for, for my two cents, I think that's accurate as far as it goes. That's, that's pretty good. It doesn't quite go far enough, but... Largely speaking, what a parable was, was if you were a teacher in the first century, actually even before the first century, and and by the way, Jesus is not the first one to use parables. In fact, within the Jewish faith at that time, if you were a, a roving or traveling rabbi or you taught in the synagogue, it was normal that you would use a rhetorical device known as a parable in order to get your point across. In fact, there are parables that happen outside of biblical literature. It's just a way of being able to take what might be a, a really abstract idea and you, you you put a story to it and you tune that story to the audience and they're going, oh yeah, aha, uh-huh, I get that. So in the case of the parable of the soils, you have Jesus giving this story, this very general story, to a bunch of people who know what it's like to plant seeds. They know what it's like to suffer a bad harvest. They know what it's like to have good soil and what constitutes good soil so it was a, it was a it was a story that was tuned to the audience and jesus did that and it was very common in that time to be able to do that where jesus takes it a little step further is that as we read and as as i was uh as i was practicing last night i actually made this faux pas on purpose i said he he makes a very thorny point here right so pun intended In verses 11 and 12, and we're going to get a chance to look at that together, uh, we, we, we find that Jesus, and this is what's unique about him, he is using this parable, this story, not just to illustrate a point. He's using this story to limit the message from the vast quantities of people who are following him at this time that are rejecting him. As the Son of God, he knows who that is. So what Jesus does that kind of puts a spin on the use of a parable is that he tells a story, but as the Son of God, he uses that story to kind of tune the message to the people who are really asking the right questions. So it's going to limit that revelation to some people. Okay? And again, it's not something Steve could do. It's not something I could do or anyone else. That's something that the Son of God can do because he knows the hearts of everybody who's in the multitude. And he's using that to say, the vast majority of these people are rejecting me, but there are some who are very interested in what we call the message of the kingdom. Okay? Jesus is working at this point to share the good news, which is that the kingdom has come, and you have the opportunity to accept it or reject it. And the reality is, at this point, most people are rejecting it. So that's a little bit about a parable, a story, generalized story, Tuned the, tuning the message to the audience, and it kind of helps them kind of get what you're after, right? Helps them have each one of their own aha moments. You guys doing all right? Okay, awesome. All right. So the the other thing I think we would do really well to do is just revisit the context that that precedes Mark chapter four. And who guess? Who can guess what that is? It's Mark chapter three. <laughs> Every time it happens that way. So Mark chapter 3, there's a few things. I'm going to give you some references because we're not going to have time to go through them this morning, but I would advise you to revisit this on your own. So when when Mark tells us that Jesus is now speaking more in parables, why is that? Well, Mark 3, 20 and 21, we find out that none other than the family of Jesus himself, Mary and her sons have hatched this plan and they are going to retrieve Jesus because they believe that he's made a public spectacle of himself. Now, this is one of those passages that are a you've got to be kidding me passage. Okay, This is, this is Mary. We, we have to remember, and we've talked about this before, it's just a good reminder for everybody, we have to remember to be objective about Mary because, as we know, there are entire religious systems based on putting her in a different category. She's not deity, right? Mary was born into sin. Mary's life was shot through with sin. Mary needed a Savior to forgive her of that sin in Jesus Christ, just exactly the same way as us. Now, what's true about Mary is at the same time, 30 years earlier, I believe that she was the finest example of a young woman's faith in that entire generation. I don't think there's any mistake to the fact that Mary was the one that was chosen to bear, to bear Jesus. And you find it in her response, right? Her response to the angel tells us all we need to know about her character at that point in her life. But one truth is absolutely crystal clear. One good decision in anyone's life does not, does not a life make. Right, so we have to remember that now, thirty years separated from this, Mary has begun to lose touch with what this ministry is all about. Thankfully, she doesn't stay there, but so there's this plan that's created, and it's in the text right there for you to read they're going to go ahead and get jesus because before he brings any more embarrassment on the family, Mary and her sons. okay The second thing that happens, uh, and I would point you to uh, chapter 3, verses 22 22 through 30, is that at this point in Jesus' ministry, he also is encountering much, much more resistance from the religious elite. So up to this point, largely the religious elite, like the Pharisees and Sadducees, Jewish rulers, they're, they're pursuing him, they're tagging along because they want to catch him in some theological miscue. They want to find something that will land him in prison, get him separated. They want to quiet him down. Well, John gives us a tidbit. The Apostle John gives us a tidbit. At this point in the ministry, it's where the religious leaders turn a corner and they're no longer trying to catch him in a lie, which is what they try to do in chapter 3. Evil has taken over and they now want to kill him. Right? The, the, all pretense about what they're about is, is, is discarded. They have one objective and their objective is to kill Jesus Christ by any means necessary. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to separate Jesus from all these people who are following so they have air cover to go ahead and do with them what they want. And so the way that the Gospels are are presenting things is that from this point forward, Jesus is now in his messages, in his sermons, is now going to be looking toward Jerusalem. And Jerusalem means one thing. Jerusalem means impending persecution, prosecution, death, burial and then the good part of the story is resurrection. Okay? So all pretense this this antagonism by the Jewish leaders is now escalating. That's the other thing that we, we get an eyeful of here at the end of the end of uh, uh, Mark chapter 3. The the third and final thing is that Jesus we find ourselves in verses 31 through 35 of chapter 3. Jesus is now teaching in a person's home. Hi Steve. Good morning. No, I'm saying hi to you. It's good to see you out there. You yeah, know, it's just one of those things, it's really nice to see him sitting here not having to do the heavy lifting. Now I'm preparing myself for him to say, brother, that was really good, but there are a couple of points I have. <laughs> no, that'll come from Larry. <laughs> Where was I? Oh, Jesus' family, okay? So, squirrel, that's right. Um, so Jesus is in the midst of teaching. And one of the attendants at that meeting say to Jesus, they say, Jesus, um, your mother and brothers are outside. Well, now you know why they're outside. They're not there because they're in the neighborhood. They're not there just to kind of see what's going on. They're outside, and Jesus knows this, they're outside for the express purpose of getting him and taking him back home. They believe that he's gone so far over his skis that he has embarrassed himself and possibly them. That's why they're there not for a visit. So what does Jesus do? He looks around and he says, hey, you know, he doesn't say the hey, you know, but he looks around at the, at the attendants there and he says, who are my mother and my brothers? Behold, everyone who does the work of my father are my mother and brother and sisters. And in a moment, what Jesus has done for that entire crowd is that they, they, he, has, he has pinpointed that our relationship with Christ is so important that it even supersedes our relationship with our blood relatives. And, and Jesus obviously will elaborate that on, on that later and through all the Gospels. I just think that is a very powerful and a quite poignant moment, and there's a reason why it precedes where we are in the book of Mark as we get into these parables. Make sense? So opposition has increased. His own family has been separated from the truth of his ministry. And it had to be just a disheartening moment and would have been a disheartening moment for the rest of us. And in, in the same with Jesus. He felt those emotions just like we do. My own mother and brothers. But there it is, and it's in the text. So let's go ahead and actually look at the parable of the soils itself. I'm going to reread some of what Paul read for us. Very good. So I'm going to read uh, Mark chapter 4, verses 1 through 10. Mark 4. 1 through 10. He began to teach again by the sea, and such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down. And the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and was saying to them in his teaching, Listen to this. Behold, the sower went out to sow. And as he was sowing, some seed fell by the road. And the birds came and ate it up. Other seed fell by the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun had risen, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered withered away. Other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. Other seeds fell into the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they yielded a crop and produced thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And he was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. As soon as he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. So this is the part that Paul read. He read it expertly. This is where we get the, the parable. This is the soil. This is the generalized soil. So here is two cents of advice, and it may be worth just that, but hopefully it's worth at least that. When Jason gets up here on a Sunday and preaches, when uh, Jake gets up and preaches, when Mike, as he did last week, gets up and preaches, when Steve gets up and preaches, and on occasion when I'm up here, all this is intended to be is just a taste test. What, what we are doing here is to help you kind of find the confidence and the interest to go and follow up a little bit on God's Word yourself on whatever level that that takes place. And I just think of it as a taste test. Our job is to help you be excited that you can do the same thing too. So here is a little bit of advice as it relates to parables. People are really, really passionate, and everybody's very certain about what you do with a parable. Bible college and seminary taught me that. Right? If I lacked any answers, just ask a first-year seminary student. He'll, he'll provide you the answer. But here's one of the things about parables we've got to remember as good students of God's Word. Number one, they are a general story, so refrain from that inclination to, to find um, importance in every single detail of the story itself. It's meant to be a general, general picture. So when we try to make sense of every single detail and shove that into a parable, we really start to get in trouble theologically. Just think of it as a portrait, right? The details that, that, the, that the author will use is kind of like a painter painting on a canvas. He's going he's gonna to use those details to, to produce a setting, to produce the picture. It's like using different colors. And I'm saying that because that is often behind so much of the passion behind what we do with parables. I think one of the things that we do is we try to read too much into the parable when it's a very simple, very straightforward message. Okay. Now, let's, let's go ahead into what for some will be, a, and for anyone, really, reading this honestly, this will be a challenge. So let's go ahead and meet it. Square shoulder, chin out, head up. Verses 11 and 12. Let me read that for us. As he was saying to them, To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. But those who are outside get everything in parables. So while seeing, they may see and not perceive, and while hearing, they may hear and not understand. Otherwise, they might return and be forgiven. So this is really where Jesus uses parables different than anyone else could ever use a parable. Jesus is limiting the message because he already understands that his message by most is being rejected. So I'll give you one other cross-reference to to follow up with on your own time. 1 1 Corinthians 2, 6 through 16. And that's where Paul kind of takes this concept and he says, you know what, to a person who has already rejected God, This is nonsense to him. It makes no sense whatsoever. So what Paul is helping us to understand is to those who have already rejected the message, giving them the message is, you know, in our vernacular, water right off the back of a duck, right? It makes no difference. In fact, to the unregenerate, to the person who does not know Christ on any level, it is foolishness. It makes absolutely no sense at all. It's confusing. So Jesus has already chosen he's going to use... This parable and other parables like it to restrict the message of what it really means to the people who are going to follow up with him and ask the question, Jesus, what does this mean? Right? Kind of the litmus test for where your heart is in asking God what this means is that you're going to be humble and honest enough to say and value it enough to say, tell me what this means. Pretty straightforward. And that's exactly what happens in this passage. So this is one of those times where we have to trust that God knows what he's doing when he limits this message. So let's just look at, and maybe this will help us a little bit. Let's look at when, when the Bible says the multitudes are following Jesus. What does that make up, right? Who, who are the multitudes? Because you, you really miss the import and the, the importance of, uh, of the, the composition of the people in the crowds. Well... First of all, um, most the vast majority of the people who are following Jesus are doing so with mixed, with mixed motivations at best. You have people who are, who are trailing behind Jesus because of the signs and wonders that are in his wake. People are being raised from the dead. People are being healed, right? And it's not unlike people who, I don't want to diminish it in any way, but it's like people going to this fabulous, fantastic fireworks display. You're just in awe. We haven't seen things like this since the time of Elijah, such signs and wonders, right? Just remember what history tells us from the Old Testament. All those signs and wonders still equated to a nation that rejected God, right? So the signs and wonders themselves don't fix anything. So a lot of the people in the multitudes are following because they're just following power. And this is amazing stuff. We've never seen anything like this. You also have people who are coming to Jesus because they want to be healed. Fix me. Make me better. This is what I want. Right? That's the human condition. Right? It doesn't make them bad people. It makes them people. But that's their motivation for following Jesus. They want healing with no strings attached. You also have people who are really constantly looking for this strong political and religious leader, a Messiah on their terms. And so they're looking at what Jesus is doing and and the amount of unrest that it's calling and they're thinking to themselves, oh my goodness, this might be the Messiah, meaning the Messiah that they want. This might be somebody who's going to be able to get rid of the Romans so we can go ahead and have the promised land to ourselves and reassert our independence. Right? Remember last time I got up here, we talked about one of the disciples that was actually really influenced by that thinking. It was Simon the Zealot. Right? I just think that's a awesome story that God could take somebody from that and actually make him one of these 12 primary followers. But you had a lot of people who were part of the multitudes who were looking at Jesus from the standpoint of what he could give them in terms of a leader. You also have people who are looking at the kind of unrest that he's causing among the religious elite. If you remember what we find, about, find out about early in the Gospels is that, and this statement is made about Jesus, He teaches as one who has authority, not as the scribes. Remember? Remember that? And and it's not that he couldn't be passionate. You know, uh, Jewish rabbis can be passionate. That's not what they were talking about. Jesus would often preface his statements by saying, You have heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus was teaching based on his own authority as the Son of God. He wasn't having to borrow that authority from anyone else. So there are people following going, You know, I kind of like... The man getting it in the chin, right? These religious leaders are being put back on their heels, and he's showing them to be wrong every time they try to trap him. So you have people following for that reason. And then at the list of those people, at the end of the list of those people, for negative reasons that are following, that are part of the multitudes here, are the people who have now given themselves completely and totally over to evil. And that is the religious leaders. because again, now they're no longer wanting to prove them wrong. Now they want to kill him. And now they're looking for any way that they can find to separate him from these crowds that are protecting him. Right? They want to get him alone. They want to slap him in chains and then have their way with him. That's what they want. So these are the people that are also following in these crowds, listening to these parables. Now I think we have a better idea as to why he's teaching more in parables right? and why he is limiting that, that revelation to the people who are really asking the right questions. So then let's go to the last group of people. It is a very small subset. It would be kind of a remnant, if you will, of the multitudes. And those are the people who are responding well to this message of the kingdom. They see in Jesus, not perfectly, but they see in Jesus someone who is the Messiah, and and they are willing to humbly admit that they're not God. They don't do it perfectly, but those are the kinds of questions that they're asking. And as I said before, the way that we know that there are some of those in the crowd is those are the few individuals. Mark tells us that it's the 12 as well as some other disciples, some other uh, followers who come back to Jesus, and their question is, what do you mean? What are you trying to say? Right? And that's really the meat of what we want to spend the next few minutes on. So what I'd like to do is I'd like to read each one of these And the great thing is, the interpretation is the interpretation Jesus is going to provide, right? To those group of disciples that come to him saying, what did you mean to say? This is where Jesus says, this is exactly what I mean to say. So uh, starting in, actually, even before I read 4.13 through 15, I would like to challenge us, and this is where a lot of debate comes in, I'd like to challenge us that as we look at these four soils... Initially, the audience was listening to Jesus make the invitation for the kingdom. We know the way that that story ends. They largely reject that message. So as you're one of Mark's, John Mark's readers who are reading this, you're also asking yourself the question, what does this mean for me? And I think it's very important that we find out that the seed is the word of God. And so I think what we're going to see in these next four soils... Are not just They're not ultimate states. We're not talking about salvation. We're talking about the conditions of the human heart when it is confronted with God's truth. I, I think this is marvelous, and we can't miss this. This is the one who created us, who is now going to inform us, okay, my child, I want to tell you that your heart is going to have some general default responses when it comes to my truth. So part of maturity is learning how we're built. And so part of what's here is kind of an instruction manual about kind of easy responses, where our heart generally goes to when it is presented with biblical or divine truth. It comes from only one source. So let's look at that together. Uh, chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? By the way, it's one of the reasons why I think they've gotten it before. He's saying, you know, you still don't get this. You've had plenty of chances. Verse 14, the sower sows the word. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them, so what you really have here is you have a very hard heart, you have somebody who is already kind of predisposed to reject, and the devil himself comes and snatches that seed. that's somebody who has no tolerance, no appetite, no desire to learn anything about this about this uh, biblical truth. okay We live in a world filled with that, and we have also been that right so Those by the roadside, the road was too hard, seas quickly eaten by birds. Satan himself steps in, takes away this truth, and they reject whatever they hear. So let's. who might be an example of that? We we, we were just talking about them. We have individuals that are following Jesus that are so blinded they're not even asking the question as to whether or not it's true. They are completely overwhelmed with this desire to overcome and kill Jesus. So the religious elite be a great example of of those who were on the hard path. So let's go ahead and read verses 16 and 17. Again, we're not talking states of life. We're not talking final decisions. We're talking about where our heart can go at any time when presented with biblical truth. right? And each one of us in this room has been in the position of having rejected God's truth. And sometimes we do it to this day. I don't want to hear it. I can't go there. Now, why am I saying that? I'm not saying that to make anybody feel bad. I'm saying that because all of us do it, and we need to be very frank about that so that the next time you reject truth, you don't think anything's defective in you. You are a human being. That is one of the things that our heart does when we're confronted with biblical truth. Sometimes we reject it out of hand. We don't want to hear it. So, verses 16 and 17. In a similar way, these are the ones on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, who, when they hear the word, immediately receive it with joy, and then they have no firm root in themselves, but are only temporary. Then when affliction or persecution arises because of the word, immediately they fall away. So we're not talking about the ultimate condition of someone's soul. We're talking about the choice they make when they see this truth. So what happens with the rocky soil? They took the seed. They had no root. You often have somebody, and we have been that someone, that, that looks at biblical truth It makes all the sense in the world. Let's go for it. But when things get tough, they kind of step away. So they apparently grow very quickly and step away from that. When things get difficult, when the sun comes up, they're scorched. And 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 their their faith shrivels in response. Initial received that initially received that truth, but it's only temporary and again, they fall away when persecution comes. Now we can all be this too, by the way. In fact, every one of us in this room has fallen away to that truth in the worst possible time. Okay? Again, I'm saying that, Not to make anybody feel bad, but to realize our human condition. This is why we need Jesus so much. Because our hearts are capable of this at any moment. So who might examples be of this? Well, those who followed for selfish reasons. We just talked about them. How about Peter? Peter was exposed to that truth. And yet all of us, for the whole world to see, until Jesus returns... When we think about denials, our knee-jerk response is to go to Peter. You can't just say, well, he wasn't a believer. That doesn't answer the question. What we can say is where his heart was on that occasion, he denied. And he denied because it got too tough. I'm not putting myself in a different category, but that's what happened with Peter. Okay, the thorny soil. The thorny issue. Verses 18 and 19 and others are the ones on whom seed was sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word, but the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things enter in and choke the word as it becomes untruthful. How many of us have gotten our lives so sidetracked and our relationship with Christ suffered because we got our hearts wrapped around the wrong things. And we went way down the road because, because we got all distracted with something that we knew was wrong. I think that the point is all of us do this. We need to know that we have a category. Our Creator is telling us that's happening for a reason because it's pre-built within your sinful hardwiring that you're going to go there. Okay? It's not something that was just among the ancients. So these are the people who took the seed and grew, but it got choked out. Again, initially they responded well, but they got sidetracked. We got sidetracked. They're overcome with, and it's not all these, it can be any one of these or any variation, worries, riches, selfish desires, the result is their, their, their growth, our growth, got interrupted. Oh my goodness, what did I just do with the last two years of my life? I've been working like a crazy man. I don't know my, par- I don't know my family anymore. Right? When was the last time I spent time in God's Word? I've been so busy. That That's that kind of thing that affects each one of us. So who might some examples be of this? How about the rich young ruler? The rich young ruler responded, he was one of those followers that comes to Christ and he is more than interested in this message. And so what happens to the rich young ruler? Jesus, because he created him, knows where he needs to go. He says, well, I... You know, he says, I, "I've kept these commandments from my youth up. I got that covered. I'm ready to go." He says, "Okay, well then, sell everything you have and give it to the poor." Uh, let me think about it. No. And, it, and the text tells us that he, he he went away, and Jesus was sad. This example of the rich young ruler—don't make no mistake. This was another invitation for a primary follower. This guy could have been another disciple, but he chose not to because he was rich, because he had too many things. And those things crowded out his understanding and distracted him from what was most important. How about Mary? I think we've already talked about Mary. Mary is one of those great ones that fits, like all of us do, in multiple categories. She gets separated from the really true truth, right, which is who Jesus is. She gets separated from that. Thank you, Jared. How about John the Baptist? I just wanted to be a little provocative here. John is another one of those guys that we kind of put in that category that he really can't do any wrong. I know he's human, but not like me, right? John, was, John needed a Savior. Jesus died for John's sins, John the Baptist's sins. So here you have John the Baptist at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, looks at Jesus, and what does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. I'm not even worthy to unlatch his sandals. He gets it 110% right off the bat first rattle out of the box. He knows what's going on. But later on in Jesus' ministry, what do we find out? We find out that John has sent a couple of his disciples. By the way, when we talked about the disciples last time, remember, a good portion of Jesus' disciples started out as John's disciples. Right? That's why we know John was true blue. But he sends this emissary to Jesus saying, Are, are you the Messiah? Or should we be looking for someone else. That's not a healthy question to ask. It's a real question to ask, but that is a question coming from a human heart that's beginning to have some doubts. And I think that's fair. He was human. So he landed on that occasion in that way, in that category. So how about the good soil? Well, we're going to end on time. How about the good soil? <laughs> verse 20 And those are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil and they hear and they hear the word and accept it and bear fruit 30, 60 and 100-fold. So here you have individuals that have an open and humble heart. They welcome the truth immediately, deeply and exclusively. That's the, kind of I want, that's the kind of heart that I want to have more often than I do. And I, I struggle to put that the right way. I want to have that kind of heart. I don't want to lead you to believe that I live this life that's just so superlative that, that I, I don't scream and yell and, and deal with sin and have to apologize for this. It happens every day. That's the kind of heart that I want to have. So these are the people that accept the seed and grew, yielding for uh, full crops. They hear the word and obey it. You know who I thought of first, even before we get into the examples? You know who I thought of first as an example of the good soil? Are the children that get chased away from Jesus by the disciples. Because what does Jesus say? He says, of such is the kingdom of heaven. And a child just says, you know what, I believe that. I'm not even going to think twice about it. It's truth. Be, because Jesus said it. That's the kind of heart that I want to have. So examples would be people like Lazarus and Mary. Again, we know Lazarus and Mary were, were running buddies with Jesus. They were very, very close friends with Jesus. That's why the story of Lazarus actually dying and being, written, being uh, brought back to life is so significant in Jesus' life because of their close connection. How about Peter, right? Saw Peter in a bad category. How about in a good category? When Jesus asked the disciples, who do people say that I am? And they gave all kinds of responses. "Ah, Moses, Elijah, the prophet. He says, who do you say that I am? He said, you're the Messiah. You're Christ, the Son of the living God. Just more than offsets for the denials, does it not? He was in that great category. He was confronted, presented with God's truth, came through with flying colors. He was true blue and told the truth. That's where his heart was on that occasion. How about John the Baptist? Right? John, We already talked about the other part of John the Baptist. I'm looking at you, Corey, like I just said it to you. But no, that's where he, he immediately and initially wraps his arms around the truth of who Jesus is. That's John the Baptist. And then also Mary. We looked at Mary. And the great thing about Mary is that the choice that she makes the condition of her heart at this point in her life, it doesn't stay there. And that's the great part of the story. It doesn't stay there. But earlier on in life, obviously, you could not have found a more fertile heart to be presented with this truth, which is you are going to bear the Son of God. You're going to carry Him to term. You're going to raise Him. I'm not going to fight it, she says. She accepts that. So my... my I I think my concern for all of us, my encouragement for all of us, is we all have a choice. And again, this is the direction that I've chosen to take on the parables in terms of amplifying it for meaning for our life and times, is which type of soil will we choose to be knowing that we can be in any of these categories in a microsecond. So do we want to aspire to be okay with any of those three knowing that everybody else is? Or do we want to aspire not to be perfect, but to have the kind of heart that says when the Holy Spirit is prompting us or we're, we're learning things from God's Word and it's just between God and us, we are prompted to say, I believe that and I, and I accept it and embrace it so much that my life is going to live out that truth. That, that's the kind of heart that I want to have. I can't have it permanently on this earth, but one day I will. But right now... I want it more than not. So one of, one of the, I think, just a, a couple last things that I'll share with you. One of the things that I think is tough for us is this whole notion of when a person is faithful at one point in their life and they stray from the Lord, right? They meander. And maybe it's years or maybe they die meandering. And the way that we view things, we, we, we try to tell ourselves, well, they must never have been a Christian, right? Again, that doesn't answer the question. Jesus himself does not preclude that a person could express faith and trust in him and still at the same time fall away from him. Another cross-reference for you is John 15 too. Look at that on your own time. But I would say maybe as best evidence of why we don't want to be so short-sighted with each other when we make these poor choices is, is think about the author of this book, John Mark. John Mark's a perfect example of this. Okay. John Mark really takes a shortcut to leadership within the early church. He basically rides largely, not exclusively. He's a good man, but people know who he is because he's Barnabas's cousin. So he gets the, this rare privilege of being invited with Barnabas and Paul to go on the first missionary journey. Off he goes. So what does he do? when they begin to run into resistance and they get to a region called Pamphylia, really nasty place, he says, you know what, I'm good, I'm out of here, right? He just leaves, he bails, he leaves the whole team. And so a couple, about 18 months, two years later, Paul and Barnabas are talking about, let's go back and revisit some of these areas and install some leaders on the second missionary journey. And John Mark says, I'd like to go too. Barnabas says, he needs to go with us. And Paul says, let me think about it. No, absolutely not. He's not going. Scripture gives us this interplay between these two. The text tells us who wins the argument, though, because it is the church that places their blessing on Paul and Barnabas to go on the second missionary journey. And that's the last we hear of of, uh, Paul and Silas. Barnabas, um, he's a great man, a great leader in the church, but we don't have further record of him. And so what happens with John Mark? If you, would have, if you would have weighed into the life of John Mark at this point, you would have said, dude, are you really a believer? How can a believer do this? Well, it would have been too soon because what John Mark does is he actually takes some time away, it may have been a number of years, and invests in the life of none other than the apostle Peter. And he ends up having the relationship with Peter just like Paul does with Timothy. Peter refers to John Mark as his son in the faith, right? So God kind of reroutes him to establish this new and different relationship. And the result is this. This is the guy that consults Peter as one of his great first-hand witnesses and documents this book of the Bible that we have in front of us. really last last thing I want to say and then we're going to pray. This is important. The other reason why I wanted to make sure that we look at all these different categories as being categories where our hearts can go is that I believe that some of us struggle way too much with are we really a Christian? I've I've thought things, I've done things, I've said things, I've had wretched responses to God's word. Can I really be a Christian? I think these soils help to resolve that issue for us. And let me, let me give you maybe some help here. And I've shared this with some people that I love very, very much. If you find yourself asking the question, your heart heart of hearts. It's dark. Nobody else is there. You're going... And you're grieving. And you're asking the question, I thought I trusted Christ. I know I did, but I just don't know if it's real. If you're grieving over that, my advice to you is you've already answered your own question if you're grieving over it, if you're asking that question. Because back to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, an unregenerate person, they're not only not grieving about it, they're not even asking the question. They don't care. It doesn't land on their radar at all. So just kind of process that because it's my role and my responsibility within this church to understand that that is something that some of us wrestle with. And I don't want us, because of our own sin, feel like we're defective and that something's wrong with us or something wasn't real. We need to have a good, clear understanding of what sin is and that it's affected every single one of us and will until we're called up to be with Christ. Right? Amen? Amen. Hi, Christy. All right, well, let me go ahead and pray for us. I hope this has been helpful. I sure hope it has been. Let's pray. Father, I just want to... I want to really thank You for the depth of Your Word. I want to thank You for the fact that when I learn more of You and how You operate and how You have created me, that the more... I and the rest of us understand of your word and your truth the more we learn about ourselves. I thank you for loving us. I thank you for the Lord Jesus. I thank you for his, the accomplished work of his death, burial, and resurrection. I thank you for the connection that we in this room who have understood that fact. I'm thankful for the connection that we have in Jesus Christ. Father, we give you the rest of this day and pray that what you have uh, uncovered for some of us today would be part of what you use to give us energy and fuel in the midst of the ministries that you've given each one of us uniquely this week. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.